Good morning, everybody. Again, we have a little bit of a power presentation for the the lesson this morning, but uh, I don't want to get the auditorium so dim that you can't find your way through your Bible. So, because uh, we are going to be talking about a lot of different scripture before we dealt with some work in Panama, uh, and the fact that uh, Melly and I greatly appreciate uh, the church and in, in all that they've done in, in helping us to make these trips there. Um, in in a sense, it's um, choosing the hard way to, to make these trips. We could use our retirement and do other things, but a portion of that we want to do those things that we feel like are, are a blessing for others. And certainly is for us. And the lesson today is called Choosing the Hard Way. And I have to confess right off the bat as I'm sitting back there looking at that title, that's not what I pray for every night. I, honestly, I, I, I know I choose some things, but at night I always I pray for a good night's rest and a good day tomorrow. May everything go smooth and all those things, all that list of things that I've got to do. I, I pray that nothing gets in the way. You know, I, those of you who've done work on house and cars and different things or even whatever that... You start off thinking, well, it's going to take two hours, and then five hours later, when you finally get, we're sweeping up and cleaning up the project, you think, that took a lot longer than I thought. And you encounter things you don't really plan on. Uh, but to choose the hard way is something different. And so um, this is what we're talking about. And um, there are um, five different examples that we're going to go through this morning, and then there's going to be six parts at the very end that tell us the benefits of choosing the hard way. And the the main part that I want to start with is about Moses himself. And the reason I want to deal with that is the fact that we recently made a trip, Melly and I did, uh, with a group of people to Egypt. And uh, it made a great impression for us. And this this is the group that we were with. I think most of the people there Right behind us is Mount Sinai. You've heard that name before, and you may have seen pictures. You may have seen them in books, or you may have seen them on Google. But standing in front of that and looking up at it, it gives you a whole different concept about what's going on. So I want to show you that picture and talk about it. Before I do, though, let me read a passage from, from Exodus chapter 19. Verses 1 and 2, it says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai Peninsula that you hear about a lot of times is a wilderness. I've got this whole line of pictures. We were riding on a big van, a big bus, riding through this area, and all you could see was mountains and wilderness and occasionally an old scrubby tree here or there. But it was just wilderness. And this is where God's people now are going. And so it says they departed, verse 2, from Rephidim. They'd come into the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness. It's a rugged terrain. That they, uh, I asked, you know, when it was going to rain. They talked about a prediction of rain. And the guy scoffed. He says, we don't get rain here. We just, it sprinkled one day. He said, that was your rain. Occasionally, once a year, a a torrential rain will come through and they've got to figure out how they can gather up and, and hold all that rain in because they don't get anything the rest of the year. It's a wilderness and I want you to see what's going on. Now, part of what's happening here is is that Moses is preparing 
to go up Mount Sinai. I know you've heard about that. You've probably read about that a whole lot in Exodus 19. Verse 18 now in chapter 19 is what I want to focus on. And then I'm going to show you a few pictures. And then I'm going to come back and look at that verse again. And I think it may give you a different perspective. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. This picture it's not. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain greatly quaked. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by a voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So we had a chance to go up to Mount Sinai. The picture on the left was snapped as the the floodlights were coming up from from the little encampment area where we were staying. It was kind of a monastery or something. And, And so we stayed in this thing, and it... At 1.30 in the morning, we had our clock set, and we got up so we could gather with the group and be ready before 2 to go up Mount Sinai with a small group that went up that. Now, that large group that you saw in that picture, not all of them went on that group because they didn't want to take this trek up Mount Sinai, especially in the dark. But we wanted to get to the top by sunset, and that was our choosing. Now, when you talk about going up, that picture, by the way, on the right-hand side is for us and our choosing in our little group of six amongst the others, we chose to ride the camel for part of that distance. And not only was it easier, it was the easy way, but it also was kind of fun. We thought, this will be neat. Now, what a story to tell. I rode the, the camel up Mount Sinai. But it was also because you're going up a hill and you're going to be worn out. By the time you get 70% of the way, the camels stop because they can't go any further. And you get off and you walk the, the roughest part up that mountain. This is the roughest part. On the right-hand side, this is what the rocks look like. I'm, I'm about 10 feet, 15 feet behind Melanie with my flashlight shining up on her feet. And you're just going straight up a hill or a mountain, the rocks. On the left here, there are two guys that helped us on the last leg of this trip. Now, most of you, if you know me well, you know I'm a bit of a macho spirit. I like to be tough and rugged. I like to be able to say I can make it on my own. But for Melanie's sake, because I wanted her to have a guide with her and a helper arm in arm, I said, I'll go with you and I'll have a work, I'll have a helper with me too. So I paid for a helper for me and one for her, thinking I won't need money. I needed them. The last 30% up that hill, going over the rocks and up through the crevices and all that stuff, was not an easy task. It was a completely rugged thing. Now, we left at 2 in the morning. We're hoping to get there by sunrise, somewhere around 5.30 or 6. That's how many hours it took to get up Sinai. Sinai is 7,497 feet tall. This is the group that chose to go. Now, you, you saw the picture earlier of the whole group that went on the tour, about 44, 45 people. These are the people that said, I think I can do this. 
and a few of them were the old fogies like us in this group, and the rest of them were much younger that went up Sinai. Oxygen, not as plentiful up on the top. Now I want you to think about that, because as you're looking at what's going on here, on the way down was not easy. Now it's daylight, and you're looking out across the mountain as you're heading down. Still not easy. You're looking at the, the, quote, path that we're following along, and it's not an easy venture. I did choose the macho way on the way down. I said, I don't need your help. I think I can go downhill. Even a rock can fall downhill. So uh, I chose but close behind Melanie with guide that she had, and she needed him, and I needed him too, but I already chose not to. So we're headed down this thing. It took us two hours to get down. Now, as you're looking at all of what's happening here, and you're looking down across, you can see the elevation. After we've partly gone down Sinai, you're looking across the rest of the mountain terrain, and we're still higher in elevation than they are, and we've still got a longer way to get down. Now, as you're thinking about that, flip to this next passage. Once you read once again the passage, it says, Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, we were talking, I can't remember if it was afterwards or on the way down, as we kind of gotten, our guides had left us, and we were on the pathway, it's a little bit easier, and we kept thinking, Moses was 80 years old when he went up Mount Sinai. Man, and she said, well, Emily and I are talking, maybe... He just went part of the way up the mountain, and he really didn't have to go all the way up to the top. Yeah, that's probably it. 80 years old, and you know, going all the way up there. And plus, we'd already been studying, and we, and we were reading the fact that that wasn't the only trek that he made up that mountain. He'd gone up several times, matter of fact, eight times in total is what one fellow counted. So he went up there, got the Ten Commandments, stayed up there a long time, you remember, 40 days, came back down, broke that, he had to... He didn't accidentally break the commandments, but then he had to take new set of stones all the way up and come back down with them. And I'm visualizing how hard it is. I was warned. My back was just, I'm just coming down the hill like this and that last leg thinking, how on earth did he do this? And he carried two stone tablets with him. And then after he broke them, the Lord said, now you've got to come back up and get another set. You bring the stones this time, and I'll write on them. And it said, the Lord wrote by the finger of God in that stone. But I kept thinking, seriously, if after the Lord said, now you've got to come back up again, if Moses didn't think, you know, I was just thinking, Lord, it, it would be a lot easier if you'd come down this time. I, I've made the trek one time for you. It took me hours to get up there. You know how old I am and how tired I was. And there wasn't a little path, and I didn't have any camels getting me up there. And, and so I'm up there. I came down. How about this time you come down here? A lot easier for you. And that's why I'm talking about this. Choosing the hard way. So we're looking at basically five examples. And one of them's Moses. Talked about in the book of Exodus. We read just a segment of it. But he makes that trek several times. Just to go speak to God. The book of Hebrews talks about the fact that we can come boldly before the throne of God and talk to Him. Just a piece of cake. We could stop right now and have a prayer. 
I don't have to climb a mountain. I don't have to spend hours of drudgery going up there. But Moses did. And all I can think of is the impression that it made on him. That God said, you're going to do it the hard way. When you talk to me face to face, it's going to be a task. And you're going to be worn out, and you're going to realize that I've got everything for you. And you're going to sit down and listen to me. Choosing the hard way. Now, Moses made that trek several times. But you can also look at the fact of, in that process, oops, that's the last slide. We don't want to come to that just yet. I'm just going to stay here with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. So turn to 2 Corinthians 12 for just a moment. Besides Moses and the fact that God required him to choose the hard way, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is... Man, what, a, what an incredible person. We talk about mission works. Men and I get on a plane. It's air-conditioned. It even has a bathroom on board if you need to go. I usually, in that short trip from here to Egypt, go four or five times. In between and after meals and all, you know. Paul didn't have any of that. His missionary journeys were riding on a, whatever he had, or walking, going, getting on a boat and going along the... And in all of this, he chose a hard life. On top of that, he's got some kind of ailment. Something that's going on that just, I guess it's... Let's try moving this microphone a bit. That, uh, that bugs him. And I can think like any of us would do in life, whether you're working on a construction project, working on a car, fixing something around the house, and you're about to start, and you go, what's the easiest way to do this? And I can imagine Paul thinking, you know, Lord, he you know, said he prayed several times about this. It'd be a lot easier if... And so verse 7, it says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, Paul's writing, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So Paul was a phenomenal person. Besides that, the revelations that God gave him sometimes put him in places where people thought he was like God. And he didn't need to be in that position. So unless people would really exalt him and think, oh, the great Apostle Paul, he's got what's called a a thorn in the flesh. It never is described what it is. People have speculated back problems, headaches, eye problems, a lot of different ideas. But it was something that really bothered him. Something that I would think would be considered something of a hindrance to his work. Lord, I could do a lot better. I could have I could do twice as much if or I could do this a lot easier. I could rest a little better. All these different things. I imagine he probably said that that we say in our prayers asking for relief. Paul says in verse 8, concerning the thing I pleaded with the Lord three times. I don't think it was three 10-second prayers. I think maybe three weeks of prayer, 
three months of prayer. I don't know how long it was, but it was some fervent prayer. Three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, you're going to have to take the hard way. And you read the rest of it. Paul says, therefore, out of what God says, I've been most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in the infirmities, in the reproaches, in the needs, in the persecutions, in the distresses, in the hard way, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Choosing the hard way. Looking back at the Old Testament, when God had called Moses, he didn't want to go. You look at the beginning of Exodus. Send somebody else, Lord, please, was the ultimate thing. He had lots of excuses. Oh, I can't talk right, can't do this, you know, like we all do. When it's time to do something for the Lord. But anyway, he goes, goes to Pharaoh, and God says, we're going to send plagues down there. How many plagues? Ten. Ten plagues. Everybody knows ten plagues. Did Lord need ten plagues? Did the Lord really need Moses to go all the way down there and keep going at Pharaoh's house and knocking on the door and come on out and no, yes, back and forth. He didn't need him for any of that. And how long did each one of those plagues last? And how long was it stretched out? Why ten plagues when God could have done it with just one? I get the feeling as I start looking at the Bible that God never gives us the easy way of doing things. And there's a reason for it. See, not only did the Egyptians have to recognize the power of God in every circumstance, and there's a lesson in that, but also God's people needed to see that God was in charge in every one of those things. And so they're going to have to go through it along with the others and watch what's going on some of the time. Some of the time they had the plagues on them, and sometimes they didn't. The Bible talks about God making distinction after a few of them and didn't come upon the people of Israel. But nonetheless, wow, it's a long time in slavery. The hard way of getting to learn about God. Well, then in book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, they're out of Egypt finally. They're finally out of Egypt and, and they've They've dealt with all this stuff, and they're, and they're getting ready to cross over in the promised land. And they send out spies, Numbers chapter 13. Twelve of them, one from each tribe. Had to pick the best guys there was. You know, the, the tough, rugged, Rambo-type people that could just go out and do whatever. We're going to send them out, and they're going to come back, and they're going to say, let's go get them. But most of them didn't say, let's go get them, when they got back. You know the story. If not, go back and read chapter 13. 
And then in chapter 14, when it begins to develop, the, the story says that the people began to complain because they didn't think they could go. And, and well over the large majority of the men that they trusted said, we can't do this, except for two of the spies. And those are the names we remember, Joshua and Caleb, the ones that trusted God. They wanted to choose the hard way and to go about it, but they, the people didn't trust God, and so they didn't choose the hard way. And so they got the hard way in a different way, and they ended up spending, what, 40 days in the desert? Come on, 40 what? Years in the desert. That is a hard amount of time. The people needed to learn something about God choosing the hard way. They needed to know. Now, as we're looking at all this, and we're pulling the things together, this is the lessons we get from this. Why choose the hard way? First of all, because God is worth it. Moses, you're coming up here, and you're going to have to go to the very top, because I'm worth it. Any man that begins to date a girl... And he decides he's going to pop the question. She's got to know in her mind that he's got in his mind that I'm worth it. That I'm going to stick with you. I will do everything that's necessary to protect you, care for you, provide for you, stay with you to the end in spite of everything. It's not going to be easy. That's why they say, what is it, in sickness... And in health. There's the two-sided sword of the whole thing of marriage. The hard way. But God is worth it. You come up here to me each time. You do things my way because I'm worth it. If I say this is it, then you say, God says so. It's worth it. Number two, you've got to learn that God provides. And that's why the 40 years, I think, in the desert... Because before that time, after the people had seen the plagues and they'd left Egypt, they'd crossed the Jordan, and they're getting ready to rather cross the Red Sea, and they're getting ready now to do what God says. They still weren't sure that God was going to do it. So they needed 40 years in the desert. There's no food there. There's no water there. It is desert. And so day after day, 365 days for 40 years, these younger people grew up knowing God provides. You're going, to, you're going to spend time doing it the hard way. So when you get through, hey, God provides. There's, there's one thing for sure I can trust. God's going to provide. And it's just God's way of doing things. It's just everything we're looking at here. Now, I didn't mention the passage in Philippians yet and about Jesus. But Philippians chapter 2, now in the New Testament, is Paul's writing a letter to a church. It's a good church. Philippi church is one of the least amount of criticized churches in all of Paul's writings. He's so grateful 
that He's got them with them. He, he says, I thank God every time I pray for you, for you all. He's just so happy with them. And yet, verse 5, he says in chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which is on also, also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. So he knew what he was about to do. And his divinity wasn't being robbed from him. He was choosing the hard way. So verse 7, he said, He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When we go to Panama, we stay in a hotel. It has a lock on the door. The shower most of the time works, sometimes not. Air conditioning with electricity runs, and it most time does, works. And I say to the people, I need this to revive my body so I can be strong and can manage what I want to do during the heat of the day. But it's not that hard, it's pretty easy. Jesus, when he came, no electricity, no air conditioning, no heat. In addition to that, he doesn't come down and become the king's son, except in God being the king. But he comes down to a lowly life. And he lives a rugged life. And he dies a rugged death choosing all of those things. It's just God's way as we look at point three. Jesus coming and is dying. And as we looked at the passage that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians, it allows God to work through you. Instead of you trying to do everything, now God's in charge. And so when they see you limping around or you've got your ailments, but in spite of that, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then it's God working through you. And it's much greater, it's much stronger, it's much more powerful because it's God doing it. And it demonstrates character. Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I say to you, Jesus now talking, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter heaven. Your character's got to be better than theirs. They go around performing their little duties, but inside they're different. Your character has to show in a good way. Matter of fact, verse 38, chapter 5. I tell you, don't resist. Verse 38, rather. I, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you, to take away your cloak or your tunic, let him have your cloak also. 
And whoever compels you to go one mile, that old Roman law, they had to do it, go two. But you're crazy. God's way is the hard way. It demonstrates character. It shows who you are. And and it, it preaches a lesson better than any preacher could ever preach. And so I say to you, choose the hard way. And yeah, I'll, I'll keep praying that things go smooth. But I know that God shines through the hardest, most difficult times. Matthew 6. I've got the passage misread here, miswritten on here. Chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it, because it's the easy life. Because narrow is the gate and difficult, ESV says hard, is the way that leads to life. The hard way is the way that is God's way. It brings you close to God. God is worth it. It demonstrates character and it leads to life. Choosing the hard way is the only way. And we're blessed to have that opportunity. To be a Christian, to choose life, to choose Jesus. So, I'm going to try not to complain when I have to do the hardest ways. I'm going to try to remember that God's going to do something with it. And I'm going to try to choose some more difficult ways of doing things because God could do something with that. Lesson worth thinking about. We've got to stand up and be different than the rest of the world. It's not an easy thing. But God calls us to be different. God calls us to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world and to be like Him. Are you living a life that Jesus would be proud of? Choosing the hard way. Have a conversation with him. Doesn't take a Sinai trip to pray. Or maybe this morning you need to respond because you've just not really been what you should be. God wants us to be with him on his side. To become his, you've got to be a Christian. You have to be baptized unless a man is born of the water and the spirit. Jesus writes, Jesus says, Matthew writes, he, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Excuse me, that's John's writing. Jesus' words, your choice. Choose Jesus, 
Choose to walk with him. Do you need to respond to the invitation this morning? Prayers, baptism, Jesus. He can be yours. Would you come while we stand and sing?